This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here, my guest this week in the studio, Tristra New Year, the author, the novelist. Tristra, thanks for being on Big Talk. It's great to be here. Thank you. Well, Tristra has a brand new book. I'm holding it in my hand. It weighs about 1,700 pounds. Uh, I hope they have strong floors in the warehouse. No, actually, it's about 700 and some pages, just like a lot of Russian novels. But this is a different kind of Russia. And let's talk a little bit about Russia. She's fascinated by Russia, Tristra is. She came here to Indiana University and got her PhD in Mongolian and Siberian history. Uh, at which school? It's the Central Eurasian Studies Department, which is a somewhat confusing name, yeah. um, but it stretches from Hungary all the way to Tibet. It's basically all the non-Indo-European languages in Eurasia. You fell in love with studying this area of Russia and Central Asia. You even, in high school, traveled to Russia. I got bitten by the bug thanks to Ronald Reagan and some of his <laughs> evil empire speeches. Yeah. And also watching TV with all the really grim sort of gray footage Ooh. of, you know, what was going on behind the Iron Curtain. And I was like, oh, evil empire. I got to see this. I, I got to check this out. So when I was, you know, once the Berlin Wall fell, once things changed in Eastern Europe, I was of an age where I was starting to want to go out and have adventures. And my family was kind enough to send me to the Soviet Union, which is what I really wanted to do. And we went to Leningrad. It was still Leningrad at the time. Moscow, Almaty, which is the uh, biggest city in Kazakhstan, mm -hmm. and Dushanbe in Tajikistan. So for a 16-year-old American, it was pretty mind-blowing and not always in a positive way, but definitely began to really pique my interest in that part of the world. And speaking of adventures... Apparently, you alone, on your own, I wouldn't have done it. I would have been scared, have done the Trans-Siberian Railway. Yeah, most of the way. Now, I have to confess, I didn't get it all the way to Blagoveshinsk or to Vladivostok, which are the terminuses on the Pacific. Uh -huh. But I've gone on the Trans-Siberian um, as far as ulan which is the capital of Buryatia, and we'll talk about more about Buryats in the Buryatia in a moment, I bet. That's a word that comes up. <laughs> exactly. So I would take the train out there to see friends because it was less expensive and um, airlines at the time were a little sketchy. So I would, and it was also just a great way to meet average people and meet other travelers and learn about the country and just see Siberia, you know, kilometer by kilometer. By the way, uh, have I even mentioned this, that the name of the book is The Tomb and the Stone? I think this is the first mention, yeah. <laughs> okay. that, that would all good. be nice, huh? It's all good. Russia. We don't know much about Russia here in the United States. They were our pals in World War II. They were our mortal, even our existential enemy during the Cold War. Right now, the best we can say is, it's complicated. <laughs> That's right? exactly. Now, Russia is huge. It spans 11 time zones. Its history goes back at least to the 3rd century BCE. It, depending on how you count it, yes. This I just found out this morning. It's home to 186 
ethnic groups. Yes. Can you believe that? That was one of the facts that really surprised me when I first started traveling in Russia and meeting people who are from different ethnic backgrounds. Um, and I think it's something Americans aren't that aware of, that Russia no. is just as much a multicultural country or nation as the United States is in certain ways, though our histories are slightly different. So let me ask you this, expert. <laughs> what is Russia? Oh, that's that's a good question. I mean, we could we could fall back on Churchill, right, and say it's an enigma wrapped in a riddle or a mystery. I can't I can't remember exactly how 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 he wrapped it all up. Like a nesting doll. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's been. Um, but I would I would argue fairly strongly that um, Russia is like anywhere else on Earth. It can be known. It can be appreciated. It can be loved. It can be hated. A lot of people, like a lot of Americans, have complicated understandings of their history, complicated relationships to their concept of nationhood and their own identity as being from a certain place. But I really want to encourage Americans to set aside this idea of um, either the villainous movie portrayal of certain Russians mm -hmm. or some of the ridiculous memes you see on um, the Internet of, like, you know, the squatting Slavs and the crazy yeah. sort of bandit culture. Um, all of, you know, there's always little notes of truth in all those things. But mostly Russia's like, like America, it can be known, you can study the language, you can get to know people there. It is not as mysterious as one would think by listening to the way it's portrayed in the media. I seem to recall an advertisement back in the mid 80s around the Reagan era. And uh, I forget which product it was for. But it was a beauty pageant in Russia, and all the beauty pageant contestants were big, hefty, old women, but they were even wearing military uniforms. Oh my God. Do you recall that? I I mean, recall you were probably a real little kid back then, <laughs> but uh, pure stereotype. Mm -hmm. And strangely, I think because of the Cold War and the information sort of blackout that was mutual, we missed a whole bunch of opportunities to really get to know each other's cultures. Uh -huh. um, and then there was this sort of little moment in the 90s where Russians were experiencing a profound level of chaos yeah. socially, economic upheaval, all sorts of things that even had a, a, a serious physical impact on people's health. And after that, with Putin, it's kind of hard for Americans to understand the level of chaos people felt and how that affected people's lives on so many levels. And, and then why that makes them want something, a strong man. And and when what and the, also there's a real um uh, caution in Russia about politics in general. There's an idea that politics are something dirty. It's ah. something dirty low people do. And while we might talk about politics around the kitchen table, or, you know, some of us can't avoid it. And there are, of course, incredible political activists and social activists in Russia. So I'm not saying that everyone's apolitical. But right. in general, there's this feeling that Meh, politics is for creepy people. And <laughs> we're going to just do our thing and, and make our either make our build our business or make our art or live our lives, um, love our family, take care of our friends, those kind of things. So people have really, by I think both social circumstance and some cultural, you know, elements have really isolated themselves from politics. And sometimes that's just a defensive response. Um, because politics were so dangerous. Um, they were mortally dangerous for certain decades in Soviet history. Yeah. Um, so some there's that retreat makes a lot of sense. And so 
again, I think there's plenty of room for Americans to learn more about everyday life in Russia and how why Russians approach things the way they do. And, you know, we have a lot of our own bubbles and strange beliefs about ourselves that aren't necessarily true if you look at them from other perspectives. So there's a lot of growth I think we could see in our relationship. And that might, my dream is someday to facilitate more understanding and it might, in hopes that it would have an eventual impact on just the conversation we're able to have uh, politically. But, you know, a lot of people have had that dream. It's a, probably a pipe dream, but, you know, you got to keep, got to keep hoping. Yeah. <laughs> now, you spent some time there. You even worked in the newsroom of the Moscow Times. Yeah, that's right. How long did you stay there? I was in Moscow off and on for it's just complicated to add it all up because I didn't it wasn't all at one 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 swell foop kind of. But um, at that time, it was about a year and a half. And I started out working in Moscow doing some translation for a business magazine, a Russian business magazine. Uh-huh. And then that gig came to an end and I applied and got this job as the opinion page editor for the Moscow Times. No kidding. Most of that involved translation. So we had some wonderful columnists, including one of Masha Gessen's early gigs. Um, maybe not her earliest gig, but somewhere, you know, early early along in her in her journey to becoming a pretty knowledgeable and fascinating commentator on Russian culture and and politics. So she was one of the columnists I had the privilege of editing. We had some other really amazing um, Russian-speaking experts on everything from the military to sort of the back hall kind of smoky room politics of Mm -hmm. the Duma, those kind of things. And then we'd have pieces that were contributed by notable business people, scholars, um, historians, writers, all sorts of different people. One of my favorite ones was from the liberal politician um, uh, Yevlinsky, who was a pretty big force in the 90s. So it was fun to get to edit and you know, translate and edit his words so that he could speak fluently in English and, and present his ideas um, to an English-speaking audience. And how old were you when you were doing this? Was this after uh, graduate school? I had finished my coursework, but uh-huh. I wasn't sure what I was going to do and whether I wanted to go the PhD, the full PhD, uh-huh. you know, full court press, get your yeah. dissertation done, and I needed some time off. So I went to Moscow, which I guess that's like probably one of the worst places to go if you want to just sit back and relax and figure your life <laughs> out. Um, but it did help me decide I was going to go back and finish my PhD, and so I came back to Bloomington eventually. Um, but that was kind of in between those two periods. So, I've gleaned, I think, that this big book, this wonderful book here, I'm holding it in my hand, is sort of an outgrowth of the dissertation? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like a weird, twisted outgrowth <laughs> in a way. If you research the part of Russia that I was researching, which is the area of the Buryats, Buryatia, um, you will come across the name of a 19th century writer named Nikolai Bestuzhev. He was one of the Decembrists, one of the noblemen Uh who rose up against the Tsar in the 1820s, marched on, you know, marched on the Winter Palace, went to Senate Square, were basically demanding a constitutional monarchy, or they had a lot of other demands as well, and they were all exiled for life to Siberia. Uh So the interesting thing about this group of men um, was that they, most of them found or, you know, coped with being in exile by researching 
whatever was around them. So whether it was meteorology, mineralogy, and in the case of Nikolai Bestuzhev, it was kind of a mix of every possible science and art you could imagine. So he huh. was a painter. He made watches. He built furniture. He and his brother designed special sleighs uh, just for Siberian road conditions. No kidding. They were some of the first um, chroniclers of Boreat rituals and wrote down Boreat folk songs. They wrote these amazing essays about the natural environment that they found themselves in, these very poetic, beautiful letters. So they were these prolific kind of uh, jack-of-all-trades Renaissance men who were living in the middle of nowhere. And something about that existence, maybe it speaks to a lot of us Midwesterners, especially those of us with the creative or quirky bents, we could really relate to that experience. And they recorded their experience with such elegance. So once I was done with the dissertation, and I was I was at home with a newborn, and I needed something to stimulate my brain so I didn't go too wacky, <laughs> I started checking out the letters of Nikolai Bestuzhev and his brother Mikhail Bestuzhev. And I read them, and I would just cry. They were so beautiful, oh. just filled with these. And they had somehow, like a lot of 19th century letter writers, managed to capture the movement of their feelings and souls so precisely and yet so in such an earthy way, right? So it wasn't like high-flying, like fancy pants, you know, Regency-era Jane Austen type, you know, you have to get so deeply enmeshed in the correspondence to even understand that they're saying, I think you're cute, you know. (laughs) This was a little bit more direct because that's more of the Russian Russian way. And they're also, they're in the middle of Siberia, like they're, they're... they, they're sitting around in a salon flirting with people. They, it, they Just the letters were so moving. They were just, just beautiful. So um, I didn't know what to do. Like these ideas started rolling around in my head. And I decided instead of trying to, you know, shoot for something actually literary, I would just write something really fun that was fun to write. And that was a mixing a sort of adventure Um, the search for the tomb of Genghis Khan, which, by the way, has never actually been found. People claim to find it every year, and they've never actually identified it. And this more family drama, um, historical novel about this family that's based on the Bestuja family. And the women would often come to accompany their brothers or their husbands in exile. And so that's exactly what happened with Bestuja. So you have this family all living in one house out in the middle of nowhere, and, you know, as you can imagine, there's a lot of room for <laughs> for, for uh, drama in that kind of scenario. Who is Irina Morozova? Did I get it? You got it perfectly. <laughs> Good. Irina Morozova is the narrator of the novel, um, ah. the main character. And she is, at the beginning of the novel, a young, slightly uh, rebellious woman who is circulating in the sort of madcap world of the Petersburg Golden Age. For those of you who aren't really deep into Russian literature, the early 19th century was a big time of literary flourishing for the Russian language. Uh Most Russian uh, educated people, the aristocracy, didn't speak Russian. Many of them didn't speak it as their first language. So there was a new... What did they speak? French, yes. So there was a new generation like Pushkin... Um, and several of his cohort who were great speakers of Russian, and they wanted to take the language to the next level, and they did. So, And they also were really, let's say, bon vivant. They loved to (laughs) drink. They loved to party. They would write really just 
these horribly snarky epithets to one another. They were like really, really, I think a lot of people in the internet age would relate to some of these like really short forms they'd send back and forth just to like troll each other. Um, and you know, but they, they, and they'd go to balls, they would flirt. They, so there's, they were really um, well documented too. That's the cool thing is there's a lot of diaries from this era that have been edited and printed and some of them are super racy. So you can really get an idea of what was going on in all different scenarios for people. And that's a really great thing if you're writing a novel and want to make it interesting. Um, so I was able to t bring in a lot of that color from just all of the sort of Pushkin-related research and writing and um, ephemera that's been published. Um, and then I take the story, thanks to Irina, who goes to follow her brothers into exile, mm -hmm. she goes to Siberia. And so we get to learn about traveling across Siberia. We get to learn about what it's like when she gets there, all the people she encounters, and it's all, again, based on pretty detailed um, historical research, which was super fun to do in a bunch of different languages. So we've got a lot of travelers who are speaking German, who are speaking French, who went to that part of the world um, in the early 19th century. So we've got a lot of really great records of funny little details about everyday life or what it was like to have to travel in a sledge um, across Lake Baikal or like all of these different crazy moments that turn what could be kind of a boring, dry narrative into something that feels more lifelike and exciting. The way you describe these people and this story, there's a sensuality. Yes. Part of your uh, uh, writing has been described. I've seen a description that says you write this book in as lively and sensual a way as possible. Were they an extremely sensual people? Well, this is interesting. If you look at travel accounts from the 18-teens through about the 1830s from, say, British travelers. So one that I have in mind is a, there was a pair of British sisters that went to Petersburg, and they were just outraged at how different the sort of bodily and sexual mores of Russians were, even the aristocracy. Oh. They were just shocked. So the fact that men and women would go bathing in a river in the middle of the city in the Neva River, which is the river that runs through the center of Petersburg, that they would have, you know, nude bathing, men and women together, teasing each other, you know, goofing around, slapping each other, like just being big goofballs in the middle of the city was just like, this was outrageous. Scandal. Scandalous. And, you know, people would run... Some aristocrats apparently had, you know, bordellos that they ran out of part of their their, you know, palatial homes in order to, you know, make, you know, make some money. There's very, very different age. And so there's also some really great diaries, again, that, you know, illuminate what people were doing in their spare time. Um, one of Pushkin's childhood friends happened to be a very diligent chronicler of his romantic escapades. And so his name is Alexei Wolf. And his diaries have been published. There were also poets who wrote uh, poems that even when they were reprinted fairly recently, ha were filled with asterisks and like, you know, blank spaces because they were so, so over oh. the top and vulgar. Yeah. Ah. So um, there it was a pretty racy age that the, really, if we think about it worldwide, with the exception maybe of, of England, most cultures, like if we're thinking of Western Europe, were much more liberal in their understanding of sex 
then yeah. um and then we and had the, the body yeah and we, then we had the victorian era where all of that seems to have worldwide been dialed back pretty severely yeah so this sort of predates that mid-century shift towards much more emphasis on modesty and chastity and we're not going to talk about these things we don't have bodily functions you know and the clothing you can even see it in the clothing the, the you know the women's the women did wear sometimes very light corsets but most of their garments they didn't have the heavy duty like boning and all that stuff <laughs> that came in in the 18 like after the mid 19th century so yes. so it was a different era and russia has always been a little it's though now you wouldn't know it there's there's sort of a public layer of prudishness but most russians are pretty matter of fact about these kind of matters and have pretty healthy attitudes for the most part about them. It's the they may not discuss it publicly the way Americans might be more likely to, but there's it's not a big deal. <laughs> uh-huh, it's the real thing. Now let me let me ask you a question. I I understand that Indiana University is one of the few places in America where people can do serious study in and of Buryat, which you have mentioned already. Yes. What is Buryat? What do you mean <laughs> when you say that? The short answer is it is the Mongolic peoples who wound up north of the Russian border uh-huh. in south central Siberia around Lake Baikal. So not all of these people speak exactly the same language. They don't have the same um, life ways. So some of them are actually agricultural and some are very much pastoral nomads. So moving Uh from place to place with their herds of animals. Some are Buddhists, some are shamanists. So it's a very mixed group of people that have basically over the last two, three hundred years formed into an ethnic group. Um, But there's still a lot of... um, of diversity, diversity within, within it. it. There's a lot of a lot of difference and and a lot of interesting local culture that still is pretty vibrant in some places. The way you're describing them almost makes me think of Native Americans. Yes, in some ways they are. As if you, I mean, we can think about it in a. Some, there's some similar dynamics in that as Russian settlers moved ever further east, just like um, um, Americans moved ever further west. Uh, you, they encountered these groups of people that were already there. And the Boreats had always been kind of kicking around in that area or people that the groups that then later formed into the Boreats for, for, for centuries before Russian arrival. Um, however, there was an interesting difference in Russia, and that is that maybe two differences. One is that land was never capital in mm-hmm. Siberia. So most of the land was officially owned by the, by the czar or by his cabinet or by some state body, mm-hmm. not by individuals. There were uh-huh. there are some exceptions, but mo- for the most part, there was no real like notion of land ownership. You could you were granted certain pieces of land that you could use for haying or you could use to harvest timber, or for agriculture. Um, you could also it's also important to point out that there was no serfdom in Siberia, so it's a very very different sort of social structure compared to European Russia. Mm-hmm. And also compared to America, probably because of that lack of I- sort of impulse to take land and make it into capital, right? You can become yeah. instantly rich in America by taking, by claiming a big plot of land. Right. That was not really an option in Russia. So what um, what ended up happening was there was a very different relationship between the groups that already were there and the Russian settlers. And in the 18... 18- in the 1820s, there was a big movement to reform the way Siberia was administered. And a lot of that had to do with granting 
um, the right of uh, administering their own civil law according to custom to indigenous groups. So groups like the Boreats formed their own bodies that would agree upon upon certain issues. Um, you know, certain criminal matters could be settled even locally, though about like, you know, theft above a certain point and capital crimes like murder had to be dealt with by the Russian imperial authorities. But there was a lot of leeway that people had to administer themselves on the local level. Not, not to say these people were necessarily just and awesome. And it was not a democracy. It was an aristocracy. Right. Um, but at the same time, there were clans. There were all sorts of ways people could influence the people running the show. It was a very different situation. It was not a, a dare I say, a genocidal situation, which is unfortunately what we see with a lot of the groups what a lot of the groups faced here in the U.S. Yeah. And and th- for that reason, things really, uh, the culture unfolded quite differently. And so you will see a lot more, a lot more sort of mixed culture in Siberia, a lot more sense that you could be an educated indigenous person without completely losing your religion or language. You know, this isn't, these are, these, I'm speaking in very general terms and it's it's complicated, but in general, there was more room to be a Buryat Mongol and also learn, go to the university without completely losing your identity right. and ability to relate to the people back home that you came from. So there's some interesting real moments there that I hope Americans uh, find particularly intriguing, just comparing it to our, our own history and trying to understand other other approaches to some of these these uh, historical dynamics. So, we've been talking all about Russia, Central Asia, go, going all the way down into Mongolia, Siberia, etc. Let's talk about you, Tristra New Year. You work for Rock Paper Scissors. That's right. What do you do there? I am a writer at Rock Paper Scissors, and it's a real pleasure to be able to, to make that my profession. I also work on uh, strategy. So we are a PR firm. Yep. So we have terms like strategist <laughs> as a job description. Uh-huh. Uh, basically, we work with musicians and with music companies and with tech companies to uh, help them get the word out about what they're doing to the press and help mm-hmm. journalists understand what these companies are bringing to the market, what the value is they provide, what their stories are. And there's a lot more interesting stuff going on, even in the business world, in the in the driest kind of, you know, business to business type arrangement than one would imagine. So it's actually quite fun. And I learn something new every single day, which is good. Speaking of music, you yourself have been known to sing a song or two. That's right. <laughs> How did that come about? I always loved singing. And when I got to be a little bit older, I really wanted to become to get some training as a vocalist. And you know, the only options out there were in sort of more classical vocal styles, which wasn't really what I felt and what I really enjoyed singing. So I ended up, um, one of the things that I did besides, um, I I went to a college in uh, Connecticut Wesleyan University Uh where I could study world music. So music from other parts of the world besides just the Western world. So it was great because I could learn uh, Indian singing, Indian classical singing, Carnatic singing from a teacher there which was really, really interesting. I don't think I'm a very good, I'm not a good singer in that style at all, but I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Russia and got to learn from a teacher there a bunch of folk music. So that was really, really awesome. And that was closer to what I love to do. At some point, I was a professional singer in a Bosnian band. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so I had some friends that were from 
you know, Sarajevo and had been musicians there and taught me a bunch of songs. And it was really, really, really fun because we did everything from super hardcore folk music from the mountains to really, really cheesy pop. And you have not lived until you've sung like the cheesiest Bosnian pop song. It's so much fun. So um, that was another really, really cool experience. And I used to sing with Kaya here in town, the vocal group, mm-hmm. which is also really, really great and um, both technically and just creatively really fun. Tristra New Year, the novelist, the author, her new book, The Tomb and the Stone, Tristra, thank you for being on Big Talk. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Mm-hmm.